OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Well, like we like to do, we just like to jump right into things, Ash. So uh, again, mm -hmm. thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to the Supporters mm -hmm. Fund, Ask an Angel. I'm your podcast mm -hmm. host, which is Jeffrey Pavin, and let's welcome mm -hmm. Ash to our uh, podcast today. So welcome, Ash. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And I've been pretty excited because I, I will tell you that you have the longest LinkedIn profile that I have ever read, which is amazing. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. A lot of content. Uh, secondly, okay. you have a lot of great uh, audio and video, a lot of material on yourself. So it's been uh, delightful being able to go through and learn so much about you. So I'm glad for that. And uh, your book is fantastic. So thank you very much. It's very nice of you to say. Big fan. I, I will write a review for the book eventually. Yes, please do that. Um, oh. Amazon reviews are the most influential, some of the most valuable currency in the world. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> especially can for an imagine. author. But it, it, honestly, it's a, it's, it's a great read. Uh, thank so you. I will, uh, but just to start off, just to kind of jump us right into it before we dive into all of this amazing data on yourself and the things mm -hmm. that you're doing, um, I'd like to see if we could share a little bit about your past, your background, uh, a little mm -hmm. bit about where you are today, and then one thing about you that nobody would know. Okay. Um, so I have been very interested in pulling apart computers and pulling apart companies, uh, two very different things for a very long time and for very different reasons. You know, interested in pulling apart computers because uh, I just got curious. You know, I grew up at the time where, you know, computers started being in people's homes. And so I had one at home and used it for more and more things and found little ways to make money um, by helping older people with computers when I was much younger. Um, and that was uh, all very fun. So I just wanted to learn more and more. I was interested in pulling apart companies because my, and this gets to one thing that people probably don't, almost certainly don't know about me, is that all of my family are entrepreneurs. Uh, my mom, my dad, my brother, and all of my grandparents all started their own businesses separately. They also worked together on some things, but they all separately started their own businesses. And so I just sort of grew up thinking, well, that's just what you do. Um, and so you have to understand how to do that. And, uh, you know, the conversations at, at dinner in the evening were about all the things involved in starting companies. Um, and so I was interested in learning what makes a good company. And one way to do that, of course, is trying, which I did and started some companies. Another way you do that is um, by reading, which I did and you read books, but another is by investing in companies. Um, so I started doing that pretty early on. Anyway, fast forward, um, this has led to various things, you know, one working as an investor across different asset classes, public equities, growth investing, and then for the majority of my career, uh, by far, venture capital. Uh, and then also starting companies. I started a company that managed data for big hospitality companies like the biggest hotel company in the world, IHG, the biggest airline in the world, United or biggest airline loyalty program in the world. We built software for them. Um, I We sold that company. I uh, helped start the biggest fundraising platform in the world, AngelList. So when I got to AngelList, there were just five engineers and the founders and the designer. And I uh, 
put together the first deals that happened through AngelList. So the syndicate platform and everything else, and that now sort of manages billions of dollars. Um, and then my partner, Mark, started and then I joined a year in and we launched together the first venture capital fund focused on artificial intelligence. And that has led to working with a whole bunch of pioneering artificial intelligence companies like Kaggle, Clearbit, Lilt, Venia, Domino, et cetera, Domo. And um, we have worked with lots of those companies and accumulated a bit of knowledge about how to run such AI first companies and put that into a book, which you kindly mentioned called the AI first company. I love it. And before we dive in, one thing about you, I know you mentioned there's one, but maybe there's mm. uh, some other things that you can share, but what's one thing about you that we wouldn't know? Oh, that's what I shared, which is all of my family entrepreneurs, every single one of oh, them. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I was always every thinking single something one else. Of them. So that's brilliant. Another thing is I have, uh, it's an insight into my personality. I have 10 different ways to make coffee in my kitchen. Um, so, you know, I'm a highly caffeinated individual. There you go. <laughs> That's an interesting one. I've never heard that uh, analogy, mm -hmm. but that's brilliant. Uh, so to kind of, before we jump into the book and all these other things, mm -hmm. I kind of want to go back to some of your past and being in the data company, working in banks, uh, mm -hmm. having a family of entrepreneurs, how much of that uh, lifestyle really shaped who you are today? Do you believe yeah. that a lot of that early stage uh, learning really shaped how you were going to invest? the types mm -hmm. of companies you went after, the areas you got into? And mm -hmm. was it part of that growth part that you needed to be in the bank? You needed to learn process. You needed to learn about uh, how data worked before you got into entrepreneurship, before you got into seeing and learning what your family was all about. How do all of those things kind of help deliver to where you are today? Do you work off those past experiences? Um. Well, I don't mean to sound facetious, but of course I do. Like, and to be philosophical for a moment, how else do you learn? Um, that's a contentious statement, but I think people underrate their experiences, their own experience as informative of what they should do next uh, and sort of overrate the experience of others. Uh, that's certainly a belief I have, and therefore I, I certainly do weight my own experience and use it to inform what I do next, but in, and in a very like straightforward way, you know, I just tried things and when I was good enough at them to get the next opportunity, I took the next opportunity and I just kept trying and trying. Um, so yeah, absolutely. You know, I tried starting a company and it sort of worked out and I tried working on another company and it sort of worked out and so on and so forth. And you know, you just keep, you just keep going. Uh, when the going's good, you keep going. And when it gets hard, uh, you go home and you think about it and you try something else. And I'm guessing when you, when you tried something else, or you kind of worked on that next thing, was it more of a learning approach for you? It was this interests me. I'm going to dive in and learn about it uh, because mm -hmm. I know I can, and I should. And that comes back from that sitting around mm -hmm. the dinner table and talking to all of the entrepreneurial family you have, because they were trying things, they were trying to solve problems and you learn from that. So kind of that mentality carries back that, Hey, you know what? I can try and solve any problem. And you know what, today I'm going to tackle this one. I, I find the challenges there and, and I want to work on this. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I, I guess I'm just like quite pragmatic. I'm more, it's more of a doing approach for me in that, um, often I just take on the next task because I want to just keep moving forward. And, uh, firstly, um, there's not much else you can do besides move forward and, and learn that way. And two, I learn, um, 
sort of very kinesthetically by doing something, um, not auditorily or otherwise. Uh, so, you know, that's certainly something that's informed me over the years. Uh, also, that's that's a belief I've come to have over the years uh, or something I've learned about myself. So, no, not necessarily. Uh, all of that said, like, yeah, I'm super curious. I'm always reading. Um, curiosity is sort of my my uh, driving motivation a lot of the time and nothing more, nothing less. I like it. And I'm kind of intrigued by this whole family of entrepreneurs because um, mm-hmm. I, th- I think a lot of maybe in the generation that we're in, there wasn't as many entrepreneurial families as there certainly is today. And there'll be a whole generation mm-hmm. in the, in the next 20 years of everybody will be a, an entrepreneur. It seems to be shifting mm-hmm. a lot into that space. Um, so as a, as myself growing up, I looked at entrepreneurship because I looked at it as how do I progress something forward? How do I make a dollar for myself? I don't want to lean on anybody else. I don't want to go to mm-hmm. somewhere else to get it. I want to figure out how I can get it. So, mm-hmm. but the rest of my family wasn't like that. So they all mm-hmm. worked in business and et cetera, et cetera. How much of that environment <clears throat> really makes a difference? Because I was on a call yesterday with a, a venture fund and they, they focused just on, immigration, uh, immigrant, uh, founders. And mm-hmm. the reason they do it is they said, because they have a hustle that nobody else has. They there mm-hmm. to make it happen. They're going to make it work. And mm-hmm. I, I love that. Cause I, I can understand that mm-hmm. they're going somewhere new and they got to fight hard to make it work. So being mm-hmm. in a family that had that same mentality, did that, did you see that that really helped you uh, move quicker in the landscape and de-risk it? Because you kind of could see through all of the family that this is what Albert did. And this is what she did. And he did. So there was always that learning curve that you could push yourself forward quicker. And it, it made a real big mm. difference in the, your entrepreneurship. Yeah, that's one theory for sure. Um, you know, for me, it was more about the absence of fear rather than the presence of motivation. Um, the presence of motivation was certainly there. Like when you come from a family that's uh, left a war-torn country and arrives in a country that has opportunity and did well for themselves. You sort of feel very grateful for that. You feel like there's an obligation to keep solidifying things um, and uh, to to make good of the opportunity that's being presented to you because it wasn't that easy um, to get there and to generate those opportunities. So there's certainly a presence of motivation, but it's more the absence of fear. Like once you see that, okay, you know, people can start their own business and feed two kids, my brother and I, you know, we always had food on the table. So it's like, well, how bad can it be like starting a business? A lot of people are really afraid of starting business because they're afraid of like just not being able to provide for basic needs um, in their family. And I haven't had that fear for a long time. Uh, And it's because I saw it was possible. I like that. And wholeheartedly agree that once you start to tackle through this fear, which is I have a regular paycheck, it comes in at this time, I pay Mm -hmm. the bills, I go forward. Once you break down those barriers or at least push yourself into a space where those no longer happen and you're not getting that continuous paycheck and getting that continuous Mm -hmm. support, then it goes on to that fight. You have to kind of Mm -hmm. push yourself forward. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people have that fear of having to fight. They do, yeah that's what kind of uh, becomes almost crippling to that person because they can't move into that entrepreneurial space because they're used to having that uh, support Mm -hmm. mechanism. So it's great that you were able to see that and and learn through that as well. I think so. I think that's a big deal for people. 
So when you started to go into your first business, um, you launched it. Actually, you have quite a few businesses that you went into and started, built, sold. Mm-hmm. Um, is there maybe a couple of points that you could take from there and say, you know, here's the things that I learned as a founder. And mm-hmm. because I'm really interested now, as we shift into the investor side, uh, a mm-hmm. lot of the times when you're a founder, you either continue to keep founding businesses. You don't really get into the investment side. Yeah. You kind of took the total shift and said, you know what, I'm going to go into the investing side because I have a really mm-hmm. strong ability for this. So what mm-hmm. kind of things did you learn from being a startup? And how much of that mm. transfer into being a VC? So I think what you learn functionally, like how to sell, how to manage the build of a product, all that sort of stuff, quickly becomes irrelevant. Um, also, you know, unless you really do it for 20 years in a very functionally specific way, you're not really in a world expert at it. Um, I think a lot of that functional knowledge is is pretty limited. I think a lot of the domain expertise, you know, working in the hospitality industry, travel industry, whatever that fades really quickly. People change, people leave their jobs, the industry change, the dynamics change. Obviously they have in the travel industry over the last year. I I frankly think a lot of that is like completely overrated in terms of the transferability to the investing world. What is somewhat underrated is just the empathy of being in a position where you're trying to start something from nothing where on any given day, big companies who you want to sell to don't care. They just don't care. They don't need to do anything. They're incumbent. They don't need to buy your cool new technology product where investors just don't care. They don't need to make any investments. They don't need to make, if they do, they don't need to make that many. They just don't need to deploy capital. So you've got to convince them. Employees, potential employees, candidates at big companies who have nice jobs, they don't care about your startup. You have to really convince them. And that's a really tough position to be in every single day where you're trying to create something from nothing and you can try to, you're trying to convince people that have absolutely no incentive to care about your startup that there is a reason they should care about your startup, whether it's to fund it, to buy your product or to join you in the journey. And Knowing what that feels like, I think is really, really important as an investor um, because you can make that feeling worse um, as an investor uh, or you can make it better um, by how you sort of talk through things and having an appreciation of it. And so that's one thing. And then also just the ability to operate under such massive uncertainty. I think that's really important to appreciate for somewhat obvious reasons. You know, it's not possible to know everything at any given time. And as an investor, if you don't appreciate that, you're going to just be annoying someone for answers that they don't have. Um, And that's just going to frustrate everyone. So I think that's something that transfers really well um, over to being an investor. And uh, the, the other thing besides this sort of the, the, the struggle of getting people to care and dealing with uncertainty um, is also just the prioritization function of a founder. It's like much more existential than marginal. And that is, you know, as a founder, you really have one priority at any given time. And it's usually to address the thing that no one else can address except the founder. And that if not addressed will mean the company's dead. Um, And just knowing that that's what a founder's function is to address and mitigate existential risks in a business 
is really important because again, otherwise you're bugging them as an investor to do a whole bunch of things that they're just not going to do or they shouldn't do. And if you bug them enough, maybe they will start doing those things and then all of a sudden the company dies um, because they're not addressing the right things. So anyway, I think those three things transfer well. Which is interesting, and especially on the last one where you're kind of working through um, the risk side of things and the roller coaster ride of your business. Um, mm. That obviously is a good thing from an investor standpoint to be able to know that this is what a startup would be going through, and that at mm. any point they could be at the top of their game, at the bottom of their game, that they're going to need some mm. sort of support. But it's also understanding that, um, and I like what you said about no one cares. Mm. You have to create the care inside of that customer and you have to yeah. understand what the problem is, which means that and I'm going to just kind of peel back and say, if this is what you're looking for, but is it a focus and you're making sure that that founder and that company, that startup has a real genuine deep focus on that customer so that they yeah. are working inside that problem. They're working inside that customer mm -hmm. and they're really trying to gauge that because if they don't, the success is going to go out the door. The company's not going to yeah. say, you know what? I get what you're doing, but I don't. So yeah, is that, I agree. That's that really important. A chunk of it. Yeah. It's hugely important. So transferring these skills into a VC side, and, and you kind of mentioned it, that you've got this knowledge of working in travel industry. How does mm -hmm. that make you a good investor then? Or you work as this entrepreneur and now this gets you into this one. So what kind of skills do you need to build up on the investor side? and does the, are those skills, again, did you learn them? You just didn't fully utilize them as a startup, but they're there. So as you kind of build up financial documents, you build up um, uh, the next five-year run rates, you're building up all of these things. Is that kind of helping you get into that VC market or that learning market for investing? Oh, gone through it? yeah. Sorry. I guess there's probably just um, a bit of context missing here, which is I was an investor before I was a founder. And then I went back to investing and then went back to sort of quasi founding. So I, I, I started as an investor. Investing was always my craft. Um, so I think that's my answer to this question. It's not very useful because I always knew I wanted to be an investor and I started learning the skills necessary to be an investor at a very young age. I started learning accounting and finance and law and valuation. And then we get more and more specific technical analysis, personality assessment, all those sorts of things that are really important and that are very distinct skills. Like there's lots of literature and courses, university courses and otherwise that you need to take and certifications you need to get and whatever. And I started getting them you know, very, very long time ago. So I, I did that. Um, you know, I think if you are someone that's trying to move from the world of starting companies into investing, um, you need to be ready for 10 years of learning. You need to very deliberately approach that learning. And if you just think you're going to learn it on the job, like frankly, you're taking an irresponsible approach because that means you're going to lose a lot of money that you don't need to lose. Um, so I think it needs to be a very deliberate choice and very backed up by very deliberate effort to learn very specific skills. That's uh, that's great advice and, and interesting learning. I was talking to actually, he was a Canadian living in Australia right now. He's an investor. Mm -hmm. And he said that when he went to become a VC, they told him, if you want to be a VC, you need one X, you need to have an exit and you need an MBA. So he went mm -hmm. and got his MBA and he uh, exited one of his companies. So mm -hmm. I guess there is some protocols that fit into this stage of, 
what type of learning you need in order to go from an entrepreneur into an investor. Yeah. So, yeah, lots of different firms have lots of different approaches to figuring out what they want to see in someone before they start working with them. Um, and I think there are lots of ways that you can, uh, figure out if someone might be well suited, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a long path and everyone has to be ready for that. It takes a long time to learn all the constituent skills of being a great investor. I will agree with that. There are lots of uh, bumps in that road. Uh, mm -hmm. It all starts with the, the main one that we all fight with, which is your most expense, which is resource. And it happens to mm -hmm. be the same thing that controls and manages a startup. Um, and they're mm -hmm. the, I think in any investment you make, they always seem to be the hardest team or hardest part that you're investing in to know that that's mm -hmm. going to be something that's going to be able to grow and build inside of a business, mm -hmm. even though it's the wild card that changes quite frequently. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So as you've kind of gone through this journey, you're investing, you're working in your own startups, you're moving through this amazing journey of all these things that you've done, great investments. You decide to write a book mm -hmm. and the book isn't about venture capital or investing in venture capital. I guess a little bit of it is of course, but you, you dive right into this whole new space. Well, and again, this isn't a new space, but it has been mediaized as being new in the last, uh, mm -hmm. I would say probably the last five years, it's really skyrocketed and mm -hmm. everybody and their grandmother needs to learn how to develop an AI because it is one of the fastest growing skill mm -hmm. sets outside of data. Um, Maybe you can walk us through a little bit about what got you interested to write a book and of course, um, on the side of doing it in AI. Sure. Um, well, the second part of that's easy. I've been solely focused on backing and working with AI first companies for eight years now. And I started an AI first company or a data company, which is a precursor, I guess, to an AI first company two, for two years. It's been a decade of work. So, you know, this is what I know. This is what I do every day. Um, this is the body of knowledge. I've accumulated a body of knowledge around this space. This is the space around which I've um, accumulated knowledge that, you know, isn't really well propagated. And so that gets to the first part of your question, which is why write this book? I think it's just a moral good to share knowledge and to add knowledge into the world because people can leverage that really easily to do all sorts of great things in their life. And it just sort of became obvious to me that I had a little tiny bit of knowledge that other people didn't have. And it was time to share it. Um, there's a huge amount of work to share it, to write a book and whatever else, but I think it was the right thing to do morally. That, so that was a huge motivation. Um, and secondly, you know, it just makes conversations a lot easier every day. You know, someone comes to you with a question and you're able to point them to an answer. They can go away, they can read it. And then they can come back to you with a really, really good deep question quite soon after that, rather than having to sort of have them ask a question, you fumble through an answer, then they have to clarify it and so on and so forth. It's just good to be able to give my most clear possible answer. I'm not saying all of my answers in the book are very clear. All my points in the book are crystal clear, but there's um, clear as I can possibly articulate them at this point in time and be able to give that to someone, have them work with it and then go from there. Um, and then get to that deeper level of conversation really quickly. So I'm able to one say that I thought it was just a good thing to do to share knowledge Two, have deeper and better conversations with founders with people at big companies, with other investors, with all sorts of people. 
Um, and three, you know, I'm able to sort of now take that as my knowledge at this point in time and then really work with it. You know, it's one thing to work with an idea in your head and sort of come back to it and maybe think about it incidentally while you're going for a walk. It's another thing to put everything on paper at a point in time and then a year later go, all right, it's time to write a second edition. What do what has actually changed? What do I know that's actually a bit different to what I knew a year ago? So it's just good to have those um, junctures. So when you were going through your original analysis and going through the eight years mm -hmm. before you built, wrote the book and went through all of the contacts and learnings and said, you know, this is where I'm going to start the book and how it's going to uh, work through mm -hmm. uh, taking all those learnings and what you've put into it. I'm curious, how long does it take to write a book? Uh, is this something that you started eight years ago and just started piecing it together until you got to this final stage mm. and then kind of submitted it and went through iterations? Um, and then second, uh, when you kind of get this into the right spot, who do you have to put it in front of to kind of mm. pack it for you so that, like you said, you've got all this knowledge you want to share. So do you have to get uh, some, I don't know, science uh acumen mm. behind it and have like 10 of these amazing people that have to read your book in order to approve it. How does that mm. whole scenario work? Because mm. I think what I, what I read in the book is that uh, there's a lot of amazing learning, but there's also a lot of things that, and we'll get into what, how you structure lean AI. I think a lot of mm. businesses should read this because they could actually get their S stuff together because I think a lot of them are taking the wrong approach on how to implement mm. AI and I think what you put together, I, I literally will be setting this out to business people and saying, man, you guys right. need to learn about AI because you're doing it all backwards. So yeah. I'm just curious is that how that approval process worked for you or do you mm. not care? And you're just saying, you know what, I've been doing this so long that this is how it's got to be done. Just follow this structure and you'll get where you need to be. Mm. Yeah. So it wasn't that I don't care. It's just that, um, you know, this is, this is, a set of original concepts uh, that I came up with. And so they are, as long as they're internally consistent, they're correct. Um, and so I just tried to make them as consistent as possible internally and therefore they're correct and usable. Um, secondly, you know, this is what I do all day long. So it's sort of hard to be too wrong about it for 10 years. Um, and then, you know, thirdly, I did have, editors to just sort of help me with things on, on the margins, but those people quite helpfully didn't have any background in my space, um, at all. They're, they're editors that work at publishing companies that haven't worked in AI before. So they were able to sort of just ask good questions. Um, well, what's this, what's this every single term I use, what does that mean? Um, that's, you know, also what led to the, that very big glossary at the end of the book, which I think is really helpful because again, it makes the book useful on a standalone basis. You don't have to go and look anything up to understand the content of the book. You don't have to read another book to understand this book. It's all there. So um, that's what that approval process looks like. So the first part of your question around how long does it take to write a book, you know, because I've spent so much time in this area, it really didn't take me that long. I wrote, um, and this is a little bit poetic in a way, but it's, it's totally true. I wrote a third of the book in three days and I wrote the next two thirds of the book in three months. And then I rewrote the entire book in another three months, essentially. So I just got a lot of stuff out in a couple of days. Then I sat down and forced myself to write 500 words a day, 
every single day. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it wasn't so good. Sometimes it took me 20 minutes. Sometimes it took me four hours um, to write 500 words. And I did that for three months. And then I came back to it a while later and, you know, based on a bit of feedback here and there and based on some new ideas, rewrote a lot of the book. Um, now I was doing this all part-time outside of work, outside of my day job um, as an investor. So you know, keep in mind when I say three months, I mean, three months, like strictly part-time or strictly, you know, on at, at nighttime. Um, so that, that's how long it took me to do it. And when now, you, of course, after that, I should say there's a lot of work on illustrations, editing, dealing, uh, with, uh, various publishing requirements and that sort of thing. And when you said you rewrote the book, is this because you created a template and when you read through it, you just reorganized it or did you literally mm. have to rewrite everything in a, a simpler context or how did you look at that? All of the above and more. Um, it was structural. Uh, it was also, you know, uh, a laboratory. There were certain points that needed more explanation, uh, elaboration or where that would be, would have been useful or was useful. Um, and then it was also conceptual in that, you know, over time, I've sort of realized, oh, this is the core concept behind everything I'm saying. So why don't I just explain that up front? That is a data learning effect. And then uh, and then I can reference it throughout the book. I love that because to me, that just goes back to the topic we were on, which was focus, is that mm. as you started to read through, you started to pull out that main focus of the book or the main problem mm. you were solving, just like a startup would, and then yeah. restructured it around that problem so that the reader would be able to understand from beginning to end what you were mm -hmm. really trying to solve throughout the book. Mm -hmm. yeah, for me, exactly. it, was, it was so much around process, obviously on the data side, which I love data. I love the whole concept, mm -hmm. everything around it. But I just like that there was a lot of input on how to do these things, how to organize yourself, how to organize your teams. Uh, and I liked, uh, maybe you can share a little bit about it, but certainly on the, the lean AI side, I think was... Um, and again, I think when you run a business, your brain doesn't go to how do you create a nice little simple process? Maybe you do later on after you've been doing it long enough. But I think a lot of people just jump into something just to say they're in there doing it. Mm -hmm. They haven't really organized it in any way or any fashion. So they've probably scattered. They've got um, in their, at least in their AI side, they haven't organized it properly. So you've got teams doing all these different things, but they're not really connecting properly. Um, and I think just the process that you created around the lean AI model, I, I just thought it was very easy and it was very easy to understand. So maybe, and I think there was five great points, but maybe you can share a few of those for the, the listeners. I think it'd be great to, to learn that. Yeah. Lean AI is all about how do you create a way to figure out if you can make a prediction that's valuable just using one data set, one way to model the problem with one output, like one report, one table, one chart, one page or whatever, and run it on one system with one person. Um, that's what Lillian AI is all about. It's about breaking down the hypothesis you have around what sort of prediction you can make so that you can just get it done and then figure out, okay, if we want to make this prediction better, where do we allocate capital? 
Do we spend money on data? Do we spend money on computing to run the model more times? Do we spend money on consulting to figure out different ways to model this with like a data science consultant? Well, what else do we do? Or do we spend money on like building an interface so people can consume the prediction better and therefore make it more usable? Like the accuracy is actually up there, but the understandability is not, so we have to build an interface. So we spend money on software development. Do we spend money on that? So that's what Lean AI is all about. Sorry, Lean AI is all about, which is to ask a series of questions so that you can narrow down the problem in that way. And I liked that you did narrow it down and you're like using one algorithm. Don't mm-hmm. use 40, use one mm-hmm. and figure mm-hmm. out, keep cleaning it up, keep changing yep. it, get it to the point yep. where you're going to get the right output, get it to mm-hmm. 96%, not 20%, like yeah. build up the value so that everybody can understand what you're trying to achieve by doing that versus mm-hmm. doing too much, having too many algorithms and too much data mm-hmm. that doesn't match up because you're yeah. going to end up failing. Yeah, exactly. That's the goal. I, I think it's brilliant. And I, again, I don't, I see it that a lot of people approach it in a different, which is get as much into the system as you can. We'll clean it up after and figure it out. But I think a lot mm-hmm. of the time that data never gets cleaned up and then it becomes a yeah. very confused process And then Mm -hmm. I think to you say in the book is that then you're not really solving a problem anymore. You're not really working your way through uh, to get the right data so that you have the right endpoint. So people aren't going to see the value in what you're trying to achieve. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I like that. Um, Now going forward, you created the book, you launched the book. I'm sure you've read the Mm -hmm. book a few times. (laughs) Once or twice. Oh, that's an (laughs) understatement. Have you gone back and said, you know what? I could polish this up. Chapter two could use some changes. I think I've learned a little bit different this way. And I tried this with a team. So has there been any, uh, you mentioned that there's version two or the next edition that comes out. Have you started to kind of gauge what that would look like? Or is it yeah, a totally you know new what? book? Not, not yet, because, you know, the thing was just published. Um, you know, it was only published at the time of we're recording this about seven weeks ago, something like that. Um, so yeah, it was only just published and, you know, we haven't really had a chance as a, as a, as an editorial team to debrief on it, but so far the feedback is, uh, such that, you know, most people are finding the ideas novel and applicable. Um, and it's more just a matter of them taking the time to, to apply them. Um, and I think once people start doing that and over the course of many applications and many rounds of feedback, we'll learn a lot more, but, um, you know, so far that's, uh, that's what people have been all about. Um, like it's it. just reading it and applying it and, uh, the feedback's good so far. Not so nothing to drastically change. I will say, you know, there's probably, uh, an opportunity to write a book with a lot of case studies that's ju- that are just case studies of the concepts. I wanted to keep that out of the core book because they get old really quickly and they tend to be cherry picked, frankly. So I, you know, but maybe there's a good, a, a good book to be written or another supplement to be written with case studies. No, and there are other areas I'd like to explore. I'd like to explore more, more philosophical areas around like the epistemology of machine learning. Does it really add to our knowledge? And I'd like to explore areas uh, around policy and regulation of, um, of these systems because, you know, these companies do uh, generate a competitive advantage really quickly when they build these systems. And so I think um, more sharing more knowledge about how that dynamic works, especially with regulators, would be really helpful. I like that. And, and you, I think you always have to have a vision of something else you want to do and yeah. another problem you can solve and then figure out how to layer one into two. Exactly. So th- 
There was, uh, and I'm pretty sure, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Blitzscaling. There was um, yeah. uh, the book that came out, I get maybe it was a year or two ago. Great book. Um, mm-hmm. And now there's a lot, there's a VC out of, uh, out of Silicon Valley utilizing this book as their mm-hmm. um, kind of their uh, gameplay for what they're doing mm-hmm. on the venture firm side. Do you kind mm-hmm. of see your book fitting into that same style that uh, AI I've sort of already been doing that, but yeah, I mean, I've been doing that in a way and uh, I'll continue to do that. Like, you know, frankly, if you want a lot more of the, the lessons and the experience behind the book, I don't know, got to work with me. Um, so to get that and you know, people that work with me on boards and whatever else, um, we very much have a good back and forth around a lot of the ideas in the book all the time. We're applying them every day. So, uh, so yeah, I'm already doing that. And our founders are very much welcome to get in touch um, if they've got an idea of how we could work together. I love it. So you really are using the same model. I love that blitz scaling. Yeah. Every book. single when day. I talked to them, yeah. they were like, you got to read this book. This is what we do. This is mm-hmm. how we do it. We're changing the mm-hmm. way you, uh, you can grow your company and boom. So mm-hmm. I guess you guys can use that in the same conversation, but I we think do. it would fit really well. Oh, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Um, well, we're going to kind of keep shifting a little bit. I've got some okay. great questions. I'm going to ask you in a, in a short period of time, but then the yep. next question is what you're doing right now. Can you give us a, a, a quick snapshot on kind of how the types of companies that you're looking to invest in at yep. Zeta, Easy. how you guys are running the venture firm. Yep. I uh, just a, a quick snapshot of how that looks. Yeah. Very easy. I'm super focused on backing companies that are building tools and infrastructure for data scientists and machine learning engineers that are doing so in a way where eventually they'll sell that product, those tools and that infrastructure B2B to other businesses. And are at the point where they're just starting to sort of release those things um, and need you know, help in getting them to market. And then finally, at trying to sell that in sort of a, a bottom-up, so to speak, way. So trying to just get adoption um, more organically and then we'll build the go-to-market function later on, the sales and marketing function later on. Uh, and then, sorry, not finally, fifthly, uh, doing that in a distributed fashion. So I'm mostly focused on companies that are, you know, building their team and their business and their company in distributed fashion. And I spend most of my time in Europe and the UK where, you know, most people do things that way. Okay. Uh, and that, does that put you then more early stage pre-seed seed because you are going in at that stage where they're just starting to get their data out, starting to learn a bit more about their customers? Yeah. Look, I think what's important is um, not what you call it, but what it is, which is it's backing people at the point where they want to really bring something to market. It might be tomorrow. It might be in a couple of months, but yeah, they've, they've, they've got something to bring to market. They just haven't done that yet. Um, and so, you know, I'll help them figure out pricing, packaging, positioning, hiring, selling, marketing, um, and, or yeah, and much more. Uh, but, but that's, that's where I start helping and you don't have to have a product. You don't have to have much really. Um, and sometimes you'll need a couple of million dollars to take the next step and reach the next milestone. Sometimes you'll need less. So yeah, it's, it's fairly broad, but early, but early. Okay. No, that's awesome. Very cool. Uh, so mm-hmm. we're looking at now is 
through all of the time that you've been working with early stage companies, investing, building them, is there a story that really pops in your mind that really shows what it takes to be an entrepreneur? That it mm-hmm. could be something where you, you couldn't believe that she or he was uh, mm-hmm. tackling a problem. They almost failed. They turn it around and boom, they just turned out this amazing business and it still blows your mind that they were able to do this. And that's yeah. what it takes to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to say there's a story that just repeats itself. And so I won't tell a story of any one person, but just say sitting on someone's doorstep until they buy something. Um, when you're so convinced that what you have is going to be so valuable to them, it is worth just not giving up and showing them that that's the case. Showing a customer every which way. You'll meet anyone in their team. You'll generate any report. You'll do any analysis and you'll do anything for them to come to the realization that you have, that what you do is going to change their business forever. Whether it's, you know, being able to translate something into 50 languages will help them sell more or being able to analyze images of their store in real time will enable them to keep inventory in their store where it's, where it's meant to be kept. Um, or it needs to be kept to turn that inventory over and, and sell it. Um, or whether it's, you know, convincing a customer that they can run their kitchen completely differently if they had different software, just sit there. And for those first couple of really big customers, obviously you can't do this forever because at some point the customers then do this for each other. You know, the, the old customers do it for the new potential customers, but you have to just, and I've seen so many great founders just sit there until they realize it. And I, I really do mean like literally sitting on the doorstep. I love that. There was mm. uh, an individual that I've known for probably 20 years. He's built many companies. He now heads up Schulich, which is mm. uh, one of the top MBA universities in Canada. And mm. uh, that's one of the things that he talks about all the time and, and pushes his guys on sales is that if you believe you've got something and that person needs it, yeah. then don't stop until that person needs got it and gets it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. He would share stories of uh, finding out where this person was going to be at a bar one night and he would just prop himself up on the bar right beside him, yeah. stage it out nicely, and then just turn it into a conversation and then turn it into a deal. And he said, you know, yeah. those are the types of things you got to do in order to win the attention of somebody and you can't yeah, let anything exactly. get in your way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And winning attention is the, is part of it. Like really what you're trying to do is, is help them, help them like appreciate the new reality that they need this um, in order for their business to continue to do well. And I think that goes down to a comfort level, right? We all are kind Mm. of stuck in our own uh, zoned out world. And that when someone's Mm. trying to get in, we got to treat it like there's a wall and you got to climb that wall to get in, you know, at least peer and let them say hi. And then eventually you got to climb the wall and and jump into their purview and start working with them. And and those take a lot of time to get them interested. Mm -hmm. Exactly. No, that's good. Um, all right, we're going to jump into our rapid fire questions. All right, let's do it. All right. So founder or co-founder? Me. If you were going to, if you're investing, would you invest in a founder or co-founder? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I've never had that question before. Founder. Okay. Unicorn or four year, 10, 10 times exit. The latter, the former doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I like that. All right. That's good. Tech or CPG? Tech. Brand or tech? Tech. 
AI or blockchain? AI. First time founder or second or third time founder? Second or third. First money in or series A? First. Angel or VC? VC. Board seat or observer? Hmm. Board seat. Safe or convertible note? Neither. Lead or follow? Lead. All right. Next question. Do you have any preferred terms that you like to invest on? Look, all that really matters is that everyone's in the same boat on day one. You know, if you're investing first, you're basically in the same boat as the founder from that point forward. You get diluted to the same degree. That's what really matters. Um, And other than that, you know, it's just important to respect the money that goes in, as in have terms that protect the investor from being completely wiped out. They're the most important terms. Now, there are a lot of those terms as protecting provisions, but they're extremely important. Um, And that's it. They're the most important ones. I like it. What is your favorite part of investing? That is really hard. Um, It's getting to understand lots of different ways to build companies, motivate people, bring different industries, build technologies and whatever every single day. You know, in a sense, what I practice as a craft is the same every single day, but where I apply it is different every single day. I like that. Um, how many investments do you make per year? Mm, as many as are good, basically. I think the idea of pacing is really absurd, to be honest. Like my job is to be opportunistic. And it works both ways. When there are fantastic opportunities out there, it's to just not let them pass me by. And when there are not, it's to not feel like I have to do something. Um, so, yeah, I sort of don't don't really have an answer to that for that reason. Some years it's a lot and some years it's zero. Okay. And you do follow on investments? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you're working with someone and you know about their business and um, can help them in a unique way. It's crazy not to. I love it. Agree. Hmm. All right. We're going to shift into some personal questions. Mm-hmm. Then uh, we'll clean it up from there. Mm-hmm. Rapid fire again. Book or movie? Book. Superman or Batman? Batman. Pizza pop or ice cream bar? Oh, both are foreign concepts to me as an Australian. Um, Last year, I would have said ice cream bar. This year, I would say pizza. <laughs> All right. I have year, years, years of different preferences. Yeah, I like it. Uh, five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Bezos. Yankees or Blue Jays? I have no idea. Never followed baseball in my life. Well, at least you know they're baseball, so that's good. Yeah, that's true. Uh, bike or rollerblades? Bikes. Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets? I don't need either. We got to pick one. No, refuse. (laughs) Completely refuse. They're both gross. It was the only food that I could share that uh, would define between two that people would know what they are because there's no. I honestly just don't eat either. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Totally gross. Still interesting, I guess. Uh, Trophy or money? Oh, that's a good one. Money. Okay. 
what is your favorite sports team? Hmm. Um, here's the funny thing. I'll play any sport, but I just don't watch any. So it's hard, but I will say AC Milan. Nice. It's a good sport. It's a good team. Yeah. I like it. Okay. Favorite movie and what character would you play in the movie? <laughs> uh, that's a good one. I really like the movie Donnie Brasco. Um, it's fantastic. What character would I play? None of them because I never want to be in the mafia. Um, <laughs> so, but I don't want to be one of the cops in that movie. That's for sure. So, uh, I think a lot of my favorite movies are of that ilk. Um, I could also just say, you know, Dr. No and James Bond. So yeah, I want to be James Bond. There you go. Yeah, that's a good movie. And James Bond rocks. So that's good too. Yeah. Um, all right. Last one. What is your superpower? Uh, my superpower is respecting, but not being driven by what other people think. I have a second superpower that's less mental and more physical, which is my heart rate stays very low all the time. So I'm very level and chill. Balance, a nice balance. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's good. I like it. Uh, well, Ash, I think that, uh, Today was awesome. I learned a lot. I'm that was sure fun. Everybody else will learn a lot. Good ones. Um, but uh, uh, great job. I'm, again, I'm excited about all the great things that you're doing. I'm going to keep following you. Uh, I'm going to write you. a review on your book because, again, Thank I you. thought it was fantastic. I might even help sell your book because uh, I just think that more people need to read and learn about AI because there's so many misnomers about what it does and the fear of yeah. AI is crazy. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. uh, great job on all of that. And thank, thank you again you. for joining us today. And the way we like to end our show is we like to leave you with the last word. So anything that you want to share to the investor or to the startups, mm -hmm. uh, I turn it over to you. But again, thank you very much. Thank you. This is most generous of you to host me and, um, and also continue to help other people understand this field. So, you know, something I'd like to leave people with is to consider how in making yourself redundant, you empower other people. What can you do every day to make yourself fade a bit more into the background and bring someone else into the foreground? I like that. Brilliant. Very All good. Right. Very well said. Thank you so much. Sir. That was very, very fun. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And uh, again, did, thank did. you very much for joining us today, Ash. You were fantastic. Well, that was awesome. Ash Fontana from, uh, building out his book, Lean, Lean AI Model. Uh, you know, it's uh, just working at Zeta. They're investing in early stage funds. He's done everything from building out AngelList. Uh, just overall fantastic. Really enjoyed the conversation. I think that uh, he brought up a lot of great points and it all comes down to understanding and deploying out how AI works and then diving into... Um, supporting how they support startups and help them grow and move through the ecosystem. Uh, but overall, I just, uh, I just loved all of the, the details on that. So just inc incredible. So prioritize, address the risk and the value, know your problem, sell it through, be focused, dive into the company, work with your customers and make sure you're solving a problem that they like and help them understand the problem and show why you're going to change their world. Thank you, Ash. Brilliant. All great works. 
all great works. So thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and or Stitcher. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com for startup events or visit opn.ninja. Thank you very much, guys. Have a great day.